Have you ever noticed that a lot of the stories that we kind of enjoy as children and even as adults begin with this little phrase, once upon a time? And what does that tell us? That it's a fantasy, that it's something that someone's made up most likely, that it's not a real story, but it captures our attention, doesn't it? It draws us in and we go, I wonder where it will be said. And then they all talk about the fantastical place where it's set. I don't know if you've ever seen that movie, uh, Avatar. I, I, I never watched it when it first came out because I thought it was like dumb. It looked dumb to me. I'm just telling you, you know how some things you see it and you go, but anyway, I, I finally, after years, I finally decided to watch it on a rerun one, which we, one weekend I was like, fascinating. It was set in a whole nother what world with all different, different characters and those kind of things. Well, I want to show you this morning or talk to you this morning about not a once upon a time story, but a story that was set in a particular place and a time and a moment in history. Some people go, oh, history, don't go there. Well, it is what it is. I mean, it's just the reality of who Jesus was, that God sent him in a particular place. Some people look at the birth of Jesus, oh, that's just a fantasy. But as we've seen, one of the things that was miraculous was about the arrival of Jesus was how he was conceived. But from that point forward, Mary had a pregnancy that was not unlike any other pregnancy that ever has occurred on earth. There was the waiting. There was the waiting. There was the pain. There was the struggle. There was the, how do I get out of this chair? Right, ladies? You remember? How do we do this? But for her, it was not unlike any other woman carrying a child. But his birth had been predicted by the prophets of old. From Isaiah to Micah, men inspired by God had spoken of the promised one who would come with the primary purpose of forgiving the sins of those who would receive his offer. And so we shouldn't be surprised when physician Luke becomes historian Luke and tells us some detail. And you look at these seven verses, and at first glance you go, yeah, okay, kind of mundane. Why are we talking about that? But what's interesting is some of the clues he gives us here about the world into which Jesus was born. And so there's three things this morning I want you to see. We'll probably get out of church early this morning. Don't take any bets on that one, but we might. Three things. Number one is this, is Jesus' birth was proper. It was proper. Look at verses 1 to 3. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. And this was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. Now, what Luke does here is he gives us some details. And you might look at it and go, who cares who the Roman leader was? Who cares who was the governor of Syria? Who cares about that stuff? Why do they include that? I think what Luke's trying to help us understand is it was not some random moment. It was not a once upon a time story, but a story that was set in a real time, a real place that really happened, that we can understand that it's a real thing. See, Caesar Augustus was the really the first emperor who took control of the Roman Empire. After about a hundred years of civil unrest, he steps in and says, and he, he killed some folks along the way, and he steps in and takes over. And they begin to call him, you'll love this, a god. They locked, I mean, they looked at the, can you imagine us calling any president of ours, I don't care what stripe you fall into, our God. 
We wouldn't do that, would we? But they did in that day. They began to see him in that way. And the people of their day were so tired of the bickering and fighting of leadership, they finally said, okay, help us out. Well, I could see that happening sometimes, can't you? The bickering and fighting that goes on in our country and cultures around the world that say, well, somebody just come in and fix it all, would you? And he did. And it was into a small, into this world, a small, in a small village near Jerusalem that the Savior would be born. And for the reason of registration, they had to go to their hometowns. Now, Caesar Augustus is a real guy. Quirinius was another real guy. He was the governor of Syria. Back in those days, uh, Judea, Samaria, Judea, Samaria were ruled as one administrative governance by Syria, which is still a country today, by the way. And they would have to go to their hometown, their town where they grew up, where they were born, which I find interesting. We've talked about this reality of how did Joseph end up in Nazareth some 90 miles from Bethlehem. I, I, I think, and I've read some other scholarly papers, I've read some, not that I've read any of those, I've read some scholarly papers on that issue that there's probably a, was an immigrant who had moved to establish residency in that land, to control that land for the Jewish people. But he had to go back to his hometown, his own town, his place where he was born. And so this census was going on to get everyone back there, not to have a military, but so you could do what we always get to do around April 15th. Pay taxes. They needed to know how many people were in the land so they could know who to go after and how much resources they would have and what they would have to produce in the country. And as an individual to be counted, they didn't get counted where they live, but where they originated for. And so, in some ways, this calling of a census would be like a family reunion. Everybody would come home, get counted, you'd see the family, you'd hang out. Probably have a meal, kind of like what some of us are going to do over the next week or two. We're going to get together with family. We're not going to have a census, but we're going to have a reunion in a sense and get together with family. But what's interesting about this event is this. It can be placed accurately in time. It's not once upon a time. It's at this time this happened. You know, many religious books have been written about different things, but you can't find necessarily exactly where they happened. You just have to kind of guess, not with this. It's a proper moment for his, this day. The world had come under one government. Well, the known world at the time was under one guy. And in this moment has brought about one government. And also, by the way, a language that was common across the empire that they could communicate the good news of Christ. And so the time was right. Second, Jesus' birth was perfect. Look at verses 4 and 5. So Joseph also went up from Galilee from the town of Nazareth to Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. There's not much in that story, those two sentences, verses that is new to us. We've read those things. But, but the second thing I want you to see is it not only happened at a proper time, it happened at a, proper, at, at a perfect place. Our religious zealot living in Nazareth was a settler claiming land for God's people, I believe. He had to travel to his hometown. Now, what did that mean? For him, it meant the city of David. Now, if you know much about the Middle East, Jerusalem's often called the city of David because he's the one that established it as a city and became the capital of the country when he was the king and all those kind of things. But he wasn't from Jerusalem. He was from nine miles south, a little village called Bethlehem, you may have heard of it. If you're coming next Christmas Eve, this Christmas Eve, you can watch a Christmas Eve service from Bethlehem. I've had the, had the privilege to walk into that chapel. It's a beautiful place. 
You can walk down into the bottom of the building and see where Jesus was purportedly born at. They've got a big golden star down there for you to go, there it is. And you kneel down next to it and have somebody take your picture. And everybody who's been to Israel has got that picture, I'm just telling you, because that's the place. But it's a real place. It's a place you can go to. And and so Joseph and Mary have, have had to travel uh, to that place to be there. Well, we don't know why he had moved to Nazareth, but we know he's there. But look at this. You, we also understand his necess- this journey was necessary. Why? To fulfill the prophets of old. Micah 5.2 says this. Just listen. But you, O Bethlehem Ephratah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. Now, I have to wonder, did Joseph and Mary know Micah 5 too? We, we know a little bit about them. We know that Mary was very versed in Scripture because she sang last week and she sang Scripture after Scripture after Scripture after Scripture. So she may have known that. It's likely they did. But even if they didn't, here's what's going on. God is working in the world. You know, God's always working in the world. He's working in the world to do what? To bring about the birth of his Messiah, Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, him. And, and, and so we're not told exactly when they traveled the 90 miles there. We tend to visualize it that she traveled nine months pregnant on a donkey. Any of you ladies would like to go back and give that one a shot? Yeah, my wife would have killed me at nine months if I said, hey, let's get on a donkey and go on a trip. You want to? She just said, well, you can go by yourself. Okay? So there's some thought to the the idea that they probably traveled several weeks, maybe even a month or two ahead of time. And you're thinking, well, that's weird. Why would they go so early? I think there's some easy, logical answers why they went. One, they had to go. They were told they had to go. Did Mary have to go? No. But let me tell you, living in a Jewish culture... With a woman who is pregnant but not married had ramifications under the law. She should have been stoned. Why? She was apparently promiscuous and had had a baby out of wedlock. That's not a good thing. So for Joseph to leave his betrothed in Nazareth ran the risk of something happening to her. That she, If you look later on in her story, you find that people talked about her anyway. Oh, yeah, that's the one, you know. Here she is, going to be left alone as a teenage girl, pregnant, several months pregnant, fully pregnant at this point. You can't be fully or not fully. You either are or not, right? But here she is. And so she travels with Joseph to go down to Bethlehem to make that journey to get to this place. And here they are, not just because she wanted to go, but because she needed to go. And it's possible she went with Joseph to avoid the rumors. Remember, she was a woman whose reputation has been sullied in some way because of what's happened. So God's moving in the proper time, in the perfect place, to accomplish his great purpose for humanity and fulfill prophecy. So here's what happens is Jesus' birth was punctual. It was on time. It was in the right moment. Look at verse 6 and 7. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. His birth was right on time. It was not once upon a time. 
It was exactly where it should happen. What we read here is the culmination of God working. What has God been doing? Since the beginning of time when man fell and made the choice to sin, God had made a promise to humanity to what? Make not a way, but the way possible for us to be redeemed to God. He says, it's time. I'm going to do it here. It's the right moment. It's the right place. I'm going to accomplish it. Joseph and Mary have been in Bethlehem at least for a few weeks, I think. And all as, and as is the way of all babies, the day came. I can remember still to this day when Heather said, it's time. And I remember on the second one, who's here today, I said, are you sure? It's awfully early. She knew it was time. We went. On the third one, she said, it's time. That was the early one. The other one was late at night. I got those two kids mixed up. Anyhow, but the time came. I can't tell you the story when Matthew was born because I'd get in trouble. But anyway, I was at work. She said, you got to come home. And I go, I'll be there soon. Anyway, yeah, it went real well. But, but in the region, this turmoil is going on because of a census. People were living as travelers, trying to find where to live. Communities in the region were, were, were in turmoil because of all the people moving about to get this census done. And in, in most communities, they'd have a, a place. In the Old West, we'd call it a stable where you'd keep your horse when you came to town. You'd stable your horse. Back then, they had a place where you'd stable your animals if you had one. And they often had space above them for people to stay. There was no room in the inn. Tom Bodette wasn't around. The light wasn't on. And the Hyatt was closed, okay? There wasn't an option. So what did they do? Seems all the rooms have been taken. There's stories uh, in, in the historical record that shows that, he, that Jesus was born in what you and I would call a cave. And you're going, what? We like to think of a stable and a wooden manger. In the Middle East, especially around Bethlehem, it's a very hilly topography, and there's a lot of caves and different places you go. But there's a church in that place now. Well, before there was a church, there was a cave. In fact, in that church, the whole church of, uh, not the Holy Sepulchre, the church of uh, Nativity, you come into the building, and you come up to the altar like we have here. But then you go around the side, and you go underground to a cave and it's all been decorated up now because it's been a church since the, since the, since the third century when Queen uh, the Helena, the, the mother of the emperor, went to the Middle East to locate the sites and they built a building in the site so we wouldn't lose it. But underground in this cave where they would keep animals in bad weather, Jesus was born. She delivered the supernaturally conceived child and began the process of raising this child. And back in their day, they believed a newborn should be strapped down. <laughs> There's some days I believe all children should be strapped down. But they would take these claws and they would bind the legs of the children and the arms of the children to keep them stiff and straight. I think it, it, it was designed to help the child struggle to build their strength is what they would do it for. And they would wrap them in these swaddling clothes and wrap them up tight. We still wrap our children up tight as, as infants. And these newborn, the new parents of a newborn child is working where God is working exactly where he should be. So what do you do with this story? Three quick things and I'll be done. First, I want you to understand, and, and I know some people struggle with history. I get it. 
uh, those of us who love it get all you know we get all geeky about it. But God moves in human history. God often can do supernatural, but most of the time He works through the natural through the flow of history, through different people. And God uses people that you think, there's no way he could move through somebody like that. Let me give you an example. Cyrus from our story in Ezra. He used him to send the people back. He used another king to bring them resources to accomplish it. He uses the emperor Caesar Augustus to call for a census at the exact time when Jesus needed to be moved from the northern part of the country to the southern part of the country. God works in human history. Whether it's a pagan king or someone who God is using who is holy, he uses whatever he deems necessary to accomplish what he wants to accomplish. i got to tell you, when I begin to think about how God works in those kind of situations, I become humble, thinking, how in the world can God use pagans? But he does. It's amazing. And, And while we like to think we're in control of our destiny, we're not. In so many ways. There's a structure to God's plan and His creation, even as we live in rebellion. Don't miss the orderliness of God in the world. Think about the life of Job. Job. Y'all are familiar with Job. He had an interesting life. Uh, I don't think any of us would say, I'd like to have his life, because it was awful. Because in God's providence, he faced what? A hard time. You start to think, well, God just happened. No, God sent that. God allowed those things to happen. God allowed the devil to come and destroy his life, accept his life. And he held a firm belief through it all that we need to understand that God's in control. Here's what he said in Job 12, 23. I think it applies to what we're talking about here. He says, God makes nations great and he destroys them. He enlarges nations and leads them away. And we live in a time where we're blessed, aren't we? We live in a country that's a fairly powerful nation on the earth, if you didn't know that. It is. We're blessed. We have resources upon resources upon resources. But just because we have them now doesn't mean God has to allow us to continue to have those. He works how he wants to work. He works to bring about his greater purpose. And he saw the big picture that Job did, that God was behind what happened to him. He caused Cyrus to send people to build the temple. He caused Augustus to call for a census that brought Mary and Joseph to Bethlehem. And we would be remiss to think that God is not at work in our world today. You know, sometimes we look around at the world in which we live and we think about the political mess in which our country's in. And I don't think any of us would say, oh, no, I think it's wonderful. We think, what is God doing Or maybe that's what our thought needs to be, is what is God doing in our land through those folks? The God who created the world is the one who will conclude it in the way he desires to do that. Second, God fulfills his promises. Let me me say that again. God fulfills his promises. Aren't you glad? God fulfills his promises. All the way back to the fall of humanity, God made a promise. What was that? He says, I'm going to make a way for you to be redeemed. And life rocked along for how many centuries, how many millennia before Jesus came? Multiples. Three, four thousand years. 
Over the book of Hebrews, the writer talks about the faith and fulfillment of God's work. He, he calls upon his reader to do something that is, I think, absolutely stupendous. He calls us to do something that we, we, we go, I, I, I know I should, I know I could, I, I know I ought to, I, I really want to. Can I, will I, will I do what's right? He calls us to do this, to hold fast to the promises he's made to us. What promises he made to us? He's promised us salvation. He's promised us a life. He's promised us blessings. Sometimes we just need to stop and say, God, thank you for what you've done. Hebrews writer says this, let us hold fast, fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Why? Not because we're great, but because the one who promised is faithful. Folks, we serve, if you're following the Lord Jesus Christ, you serve a faithful God. You go, but man, things are hard right now. Things are tough here. Things are difficult here. That doesn't mean God's still not faithful and that God's not carrying us through those times. And then there's one more principle. I told you we were going out early. There's a principle I want you to see as I wrap up. is that God uses regular people. You know who those are? Just do that. Me. I'm a regular folk. So are you. I look at the scriptures in the big picture. And while some in the Bible are what we might call high-born, they're, they're, they're royalty, the majority of characters in the scripture, listen, are people like you and me. Regular folk living regular lives, doing the things that God calls us to do. These are people who, if it wasn't for the calling of God on their lives, you'd have never heard of them. Think about this. P- Peter and, and John, you, you know, you've heard a couple of disciples of Jesus. You, you know, had they not been called by Jesus on the seashore, seashore, seashells on the seashore, that's always been a hard one for me. Now on the seashore to follow him, you and I would have never heard of these guys. Why? Because they were just regular folks like you and me. They would have raised, they would have fished for a living, they would have gotten married, they would have had children, they would have raised those kids, they would have gotten older, they'd had grandkids, and they would have died in a couple generations, nobody would remember them. Just like us. You say, that's a bad thing. No, that's okay. That's what God uses, that's who God uses. They didn't have education, they didn't have resources, they didn't have influence, but they had one thing in their lives that I want you to consider for you to add to your life this Christmas season, and it's this, a boldness for the Lord. This is whatever God opens the opportunity for me, whatever God opens the, the, the door for me to serve Him, wherever He shows me I need to be, that's where I want to be. To be faithful. Listen to the description of the men by the powers that be, so to speak. The ones that, that looked at these, 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 these guys, Peter and John, and said this. When they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived they were uneducated common men, they were blown away. That's a paraphrase, by the way. They were astonished. They're, these guys, well, they're nobody. They don't know anything. They're just common people. They don't have education. But there was one thing about them that, that can be common for our lives, and that's what? They recognized what? They had been with Jesus. Oh, my friends, can people look at your life and my life and say they've been with Jesus? That there's something different in their heart, in their lives, in the way they speak. 
Sometimes we think, well, I can't do that. I can't. I lack this. I lack that. Let me tell you something. Mary was uneducated. Peter and John were uneducated. But what they had is what we all need, this presence of God in our lives that has a boldness. And that all starts with that personal relationship with God. Maybe you're here today and you've never met Him. Maybe you've never really had that relationship. You say, well, I go to church. Great. I go. I don't go to McDonald's anymore, but if I did, I'd make me a hamburger, right? Just because you go somewhere doesn't make you have it. You with me? We need Jesus in our lives. Do you know Him? Are you walking with Him? Have you trusted Him? Let's pray. Father God, we thank You for loving us. We thank You for the day You've given us to come together and to worship. And we think of that just routine, mundane story in those seven verses about a, a Caesar, about a governor, about a census, about a family moving and traveling 90 miles or so to be where they needed to be. But God, how you work through all of that. And Father, we think about how you want to work through our lives, our regular people lives. That Father, we live our lives. Many of us have children. We have grandchildren. And then someday we're gone. And then not too long after that, people say, what was their name? But God, in the moment you have us, you want to use us. And that happens when we know you as Savior. We thank you for loving us this day. Give us the faith to respond as we need to. In Jesus' name, amen.